0: In
1: 2015, long before COVID-19 began to rip around the world, Bill Gates gave a TED talk. Years later, it seems remarkably prescient. He entered the stage wheeling a large barrel marked survival supplies.
2: When I was a kid, the disaster we worried about most was a nuclear war. That's why we had a barrel like this down in our basement, filled with cans of food and water. When the nuclear attack came, we were supposed to go downstairs, hunker down and eat out of that barrel.
1: But in fact, he said, the greatest risk of global catastrophe didn't come in the form of a mushroom cloud from a nuclear bomb, but a tiny pathogen. If anything kills
2: over 10 million people in the next few decades, it's most likely to be a highly infectious virus rather than a war.
1: Not missiles, but microbes. We're all too familiar now with how right he turned out to be. This year, Bill Gates took to the TED podium once again.
2: In the year 60E, a fire devastated Rome.
1: This time carrying a different prop, a replica of a bucket used by the first firefighting brigades in ancient Rome.
2: He created a permanent team of firefighters who used buckets just like this one.
1: It symbolized an idea from his latest book, How to Prevent the Next Pandemic. He wants the world to create a kind of global fire brigade to make pandemics and public health emergencies a thing of the past. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. This week, our science and technology editor, Jeff Carr, took a trip to California to meet Bill Gates and hear what he had to say about how to prevent future health threats. From what kinds of viruses pose a risk to human society to his optimism about the new technologies that could prevent pathogens from spreading around the world. So, how can the next pandemic be prevented? The economist science and technology editor Jeff Carr is with me now. Hi Jeff, good to have you back. Hi Alok, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Now Jeff, you've been to see Bill Gates and he's been renewing his calls for better pandemic preparedness, hasn't he?
3: He has indeed. He's Very well known, of course, in the field of global health. The uh, foundation he set up has done a lot of work on uh, HIV and on malaria and other illnesses. For this, he wants to create a new organisation. He's going to call it GERM, if it happens. He calls it the GERM team, indeed, which means Global Epidemic Response and Mobilisation. The idea would be to assemble a team of about 3,000 experts, epidemiologists, geneticists, drug and vaccine developers, computer modellers, diplomats, people who would be able to uh, engage in various aspects of the problem. And uh, he suggests it might all be managed under the aegis of the World Health Organization.
1: Um, You you had the pleasure of going over to California to catch up with him about these plans, didn't you? Where did you meet him?
3: Well, I met him in a place called Palm Desert, it's just south of Palm Springs.
1: Bill,
2: how, how do you? you? Good to see you. Yeah, it's great you're here. Ah, uh, oh, thank you. In person. I'm in person, yes.
3: <laughs> and they oh, oh, have uh, a little recording studio oh, there. This is actually my first interview for the book, so. Uh, oh, so blimey. So no okay, Right. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no pressure then. Uh, <laughs> well, maybe the most fun one also. <laughs> so similar.
3: we sat down in that to have a really good chat about what he hopes to see to avoid the sort of catastrophe we've just witnessed happening again in the future. Bill Gates. You have spent much of the past two and a half decades, I think, thinking about pandemic disease. You've also warned in the past that the world is not equipped to deal with a rapidly spreading infection like Covid. Why do you think that is? Well, it's interesting to compare other bad situations and
2: how well governments do in protecting their citizens from those. Things like fire, which I think is an important analogy, you have lots of small fires, and so you have this constant reminder that, oh my God, you know every day there's some of these things, and let's have professionals let's have capacity and they they're good at practicing the wars you don't get that many of, but you know there is practice you know so called war games and things, and of course almost sadly you might say massive money that goes into those you know earthquakes there's lots of small ones uh, pandemics. Infectious disease doesn't really hit, particularly the rich world, very often. I mean, yes, we had a few Ebola yeah. cases, and we had SARS-CoV-1. And the last really big
3: one, of course, is over 100 years ago now. How would you attempt to preempt the next one? You, you wrote about the idea of having some sort of a global fire brigade. How would that work? What would it do? What would its remit be, and who would pay for it?
2: Yeah, so the book... You know, says you have to do three things the global fire brigade which that's by far the most concrete thing in the book and so I'll, I'll elaborate on that second is a lot of innovative tools better diagnostics therapeutics and vaccines and then finally the big number is just improving health systems the good one about that is that that helps you every year even when there's not a pandemic even some of the r&d you know like vaccines that are Easy to apply and thermostable That helps you even not in the pandemic. The very first thing is where I go into the most detail. That's this germ group. You know, I think germ stands for global epidemic response and mobilization. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> no acronym there then. <laughs> yeah. So it's you know yeah an acronym and it's about three thousand people with a wide range of skill sets. You know, we have to mm-hmm. data reporting the formats, the models, how you orchestrate all of that. I mean, the data, wow, there was a lot of bad data. You've got to
3: take a lot of countries on board with that, and very often these things emerge in places which are not necessarily entirely transparent. How would this work diplomatically? How would you gather everybody in?
2: Yeah, Ground Zero, sadly, could be in a place with very little capacity, or it could be in a place that chooses to cover it up The latter, I'm not as worried about. I mean, yes, could we have gained a few weeks? I mean, people will be arguing about that for a long time. And a lot of people, their biases for or against China in general, sadly, kind of influences how they see that. I'm not sure that we'll get going much faster in a future pandemic than we did in this one. And part of that is that, I think the likelihood of an outbreak is in very low-income countries where Mm, the boundary between humans and animals and meat markets, you know. Although we've had now a couple in China, you know, Africa is a significant source of natural. My book isn't super focused on bioterrorism as a a threat factor. Mm. If you want to get serious about that, everything in the book is necessary, but you have to do even more because you have an opponent who sort of intentionally picked a bad virus and conceded it in many places. And so that's an even tougher problem. Yes. But for the natural pathogen, the 3,000 people in the germ team, they would do more hands on work for low capacity countries like DRC and for rich countries they would just agree on protocols and do the simulations, they wouldn't need to have full-time staff in Mm. uh, upper-income countries. This is is
3: all very reactive. Uh, How how much do you think we could create an organization that was a surveillance organization that spotted something really early and stopped it becoming pandemic or epidemic?
2: Well, that promise is that we can catch it early enough, and that means Mm. in those first hundred days, And so that it doesn't spread to a lot of countries, and so it becomes labeled a pandemic. So yeah. I literally say that if you catch it and it's only in you know three or four countries, mm. it won't be called a pandemic, yeah. and the deaths and economic damage will be hopefully less than one percent if you do that well of what we suffered this time around. You know we have a lot of experience in mm. surveillance. you know the improvement in diagnostic tools is pretty phenomenal, and mm. that that really helps your surveillance because if you have an unusual spike in say respiratory disease, then you can go in and get the pathogen, get the sequence pretty quickly. You know, we scaled up sequencing capacity and diagnostic capacity at the tail of this pandemic. That has Mm. to be there in advance.
3: That would be one of the things that Germ was doing, would it be? Yes, building this up.
2: It'll look at every country and say, okay, do you have that diagnostic capacity? Do you need donor money to do that? Do you need training to do that? So yeah, catching it early, in you know some rural, low-income place that's necessary or or that'll be where the pandemics come from.
3: What, what do you think about the idea of, of, of going even further back in the train of causation than that? And we know almost all pathogens start in animals and cross the species barrier, looking to catalogue the risk, if you like, there's a global virus project, for example.
2: Yeah, there are some people very enthused about that. And certainly we should fund research in that area. The current state of the art at being able to look at a virus that's in an animal and understand The risk level of it adapting to, say, human receptors, crossing over, is so weak that you can look at millions of these viruses that are there in these animals, and it's not that helpful because you see there's just so many. You know, fortunately, very few of those make that path. We understand, like, that pigs' lungs have receptors similar to ours, so typically flu... You know, it's endemic in birds, except for a few cases it Hmm. goes through (laughs) pigs, and humans are living in, particularly in China, they're living in close proximity, so those things cross over. I don't know that you can get an early warning signal by seeing a virus
3: in another species. If we could, great. And- I know there are some people who've had this idea that you catalogue the viruses in animals, animals of the sort that people interact with. So you know the viruses in the animals, and then you take samples from locals every so often and see if the viruses are getting in there. And and when you look back at the history of HIV, which I know you're extremely familiar with, some strains of HIV have got into the human population and gone nowhere. And then finally one really became rampant.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, the world's a big place. So how many sampling sites would you need to have some percentage chance of seeing it early on? This, like, you know, understanding transmission and variants, I hope the world's R&D budgets either shift in this direction or increase to cover these things i don't think we're smart enough to say okay that you don't put all your money on seeing it early i think it's worth trying but god there's so many species and so many places it it could cross over i don't know that by going down into the animal domain we'll be smarter about seeing it early or just seeing potential ones and then having preparation for that but hey there's Smart people are very energetic about that, and, you know, hundreds of them should be
3: well-funded to pursue that. Mm. If we were to eradicate the entire families of respiratory viruses, influenza normally starts in a domestic animal or in wildfowl, would you be able to reach back into those populations or would you just be trying to inoculate the world's population so that the crossover never happens.
2: Yeah, I think you can get rid of it in pigs and create a barrier to cross over there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Birds, no. So you're going to still have to have vigilance for crossovers coming out of birds, Mm -hmm. which has happened a few times. So you can't just ignore flu forever, but you get rid of massive current burden and the idea that the variant in humans is what comes along and creates that next pandemic.
3: In the current pandemic, the one thing that's been very successful is vaccination. In your uh, germ hypothesis, if I may put it like that, um, the germ theory of Bill Gates, uh, how would you go about developing vaccine preparedness, meaning that we could react even faster to, uh, to that? Yeah,
2: in the first 100 days, you're not going to have a vaccine for an unknown pathogen. But what you'd really like for the first 100 days is just to have a a blocker, something you could inhale that's either very generic, um, there's some really good work about just making your immune system prepared, the innate immune system, and two or three compounds that look like they put your immune system on such high alert that in a very broad way you can resist getting infected. Then, you know, there very quickly creating like a mini binder, just a protein that happens to latch onto the virus and get an aerosol version of that, that you might be able to get out very, very quickly. But part of the game with vaccines is to develop for all the known family of respiratory viruses, very, very broad vaccine coverage and potentially even use those vaccines to eradicate the virus presence in humans. You know, if you took flu out of humans, there's a lot of negative health effects of flu every year. There's a lot of deaths. You know, it's believed that having flu while you're pregnant predisposes lots of negative outcomes for the birth, including even schizophrenia risk is substantially really? increased if a mother has flu during the first trimester. It's like four times know, no. greater mm, risk. Mm, mm. And, you know, these viral infections often leave bad things later, like we're still learning a lot about. Long COVID and what might be there. And even a recent paper saying there's elevated diabetes in people who've had COVID, although I think there'll still be some debate about that one. So, vaccines can get rid of respiratory pathogens.
3: But you seriously think that universal vaccines like that could be developed? But- Absolutely. I
2: mean, the Gates Foundation funds those things. Yes. Now we're off into my optimism about innovation and, you know, the improved understanding of how to do vaccines and how the immune system works and flu is tricky because different patients have different exposures to different types of flu the immune system has this huge bias the first flu that you see the rest of time your immune system wants to go after that and teaching it no this one too this one too that full broad yes. coverage uh, it's actually easier for somebody who's immunologically naive and has mm. never seen flu but To do this eradication of flu, we have to not just get young people, we have to even get all the people even older who have their immune system state relative to flu is very complex. But Mm -hmm. yes, I believe that we can eradicate flu. We don't have the tools today. Eradications are so difficult, but I do think we can invent those tools and that we should have that in mind to set an aspirational goal that we fund at least at the R&D
3: level. Now, I, we've been talking about respiratory illnesses, but there have been several instances in the 20th century of vector-borne illnesses, starting in one place, usually somewhere in Africa, and then spreading around the world. There are things like Zika and West Nile. If something as bad as malaria were to emerge in that way, how would we deal with that? Yeah,
2: so fortunately, very few vectors have a global presence You have 80s mosquitoes, and you have Anopheline mosquitoes. Mm. Things like these ticks and whiteflies that are sometimes spreaders, they're fairly regionally confined. But I do think in the next decade, we'll have these gene drive tools, which will be extremely helpful to eradicate malaria, and that that could be used against any type of vector. So I'm not super worried about the vector-borne diseases because of my optimism for gene drive. If something like HIV were to emerge now, would we spot it much earlier? Because of sequencing, yes. Mm. Uh, But nature designed this unbelievable latency thing that you get a little bit sick at the beginning Mm. and then you go for years, usually for an adult, six or seven years where your immune system is fighting slowly but surely a losing battle and so we hope that there aren't many hmm. like that. Today, hopefully you have just random sampling
3: sequencing so that you would catch it a lot earlier. So, I mean, that, that in itself is a nice piece of pandemic preemption, if you like, that we would no longer expect to see uh, pandemic sexually transmitted diseases.
2: Yes. If you're sampling correctly, the rate of spread of something that's sexual you would catch it early before it got global. So you shouldn't have another HIV. Going back to the idea
3: of germ, it's horrible to say it, but the world's attention is now on the idea of a pandemic respiratory disease. As it starts to drift away, which seems to be happening at the moment, political attention is going to wander and it's probably going to wander quite fast, particularly with certain other events that are going on in the world. How do you keep people focused on doing this long enough to set up your new organization? get it going and launch it in a way that's irreversible.
2: I think hopefully for a generation and maybe two generations, this pandemic and the tragedy of it will be very clear in people's mind. And, you know, to talk about a germ, a global surveillance at a billion a year and, you know, in a distributed way, increased R&D budgets of maybe 10 to 20 billion a year and then a rededication to improving health systems, which those numbers can be very, very large. You know, I think that will happen. I think we're just looking at these learning deficits and the depression and the indebtedness levels. You know, this thing, not only did it kill tens of millions, but it it had all these other negative effects. So I, I don't think we'll lose sight of that very quickly. I'm a little surprised there's not more dialogue there is some debate okay how should we be ready for the next one and some discussion about countries stepping up for that we stretched all the budgets so badly during the pandemic that money for normal global health things and for pandemic related things you know
3: are going to be tough tough to find yeah that I think was the burden of my point that certainly there's a financial exhaustion in my own country and uh, similar problems elsewhere it's very easy to say, oh, yes, we'll do this, and then it just slips away. I don't know how one keeps it uh, front of mind while the uh, the apparatus is built up. Yeah, it's pretty cheap,
2: though. I, I mean, you know, this is $14 trillion and counting, and, you know, a little bit of this cost is hidden because we just raise government indebtedness and yes. the understanding on macroeconomics, on how that makes us more fragile and how that gets paid back. So people may not be feeling it fully. But when you talk about spending, you know, a billion a year on the global piece and tens of billions on the other piece, you know, that's a thousand to one type return. And this is not like most of global health, where you're talking about deaths of people in faraway countries, low-income countries that, you know, you don't see very often. Mm. here, you know, people really had friends and family who died, sadly, long covid may provide a constant reminder of the problems of of allowing a, a viral infection to spread to over half of the global population.
3: So if we were to come back in five years time say and have another conversation what would you like to see in place that realistically could be in place by then?
2: Well certainly the germ team is the very concrete thing. And it has huge benefits in terms of life saved, even in the years that there's not something you're stopping from becoming a pandemic. The second thing would be to look at the R&D budgets. You know, did the U.S. NIH, did they fund like an inhaled vaccine that blocks transmission? Throughout this epidemic, we've been talking about hey, it's helpful to other people for you to get vaccinated. Well, that's only true to the degree that it blocks the infection, which was way more limited once we had Omicron in particular than we expected. If we had vaccines that were perfect transmission blockers, if you were vaccinated, you never get infected, then you're not in a transmission chain. And that allows you to knock the disease down so much faster. And there is an indication that if you have normal vaccination and then you just inhale either an mRNA or just a subunit protein, some early stuff the foundation has funded, looks like you get this mucosal protection. And so, like in the human challenge trials that the UK allows, it looks like we'll be able to, just adding that one thing will be a So you
3: would hope that within five years we'd have something like that?
2: Yes. I hope we have blockers. And maybe, you know, we have fire drills. You know, when I was a kid, we even had nuclear... drills. Now, those, those, I wouldn't say, uh, would have saved that many lives. It scared the hell out of us, which may be good because our awareness that that was a scary thing was there. But anyway, germ team existing, the drills, the R&D, and the early stuff out of the R&D, I would think, would be the transmission-blocking vaccines and maybe an innate immune system stimulator that would work across all viral pathogens. And one last question. How hopeful are you that this might actually all happen? You know, I'm an optimist, and the cost involved, you know, is less than a new weapon system. And I'd still say today, exactly what I said in 2015, that the greatest risk of, say, 20 million excess deaths, the greatest risk is not a meteor, Mm. it's not a nuclear war, uh, it is the next pandemic. And the steps... To be ready for the next pandemic, it's tens of billions of cost, but with lots of additional benefits to prevent trillions of dollars of economic damage and tens of billions of deaths. So we don't have to be super rational to see this as a smart thing. The cooperative elements of, okay, you know, how do we come together to pay for it? Fortunately, the R&D, you don't need to coordinate globally. But the the germ thing, you have to say, mm. is this the legitimate choice and all the data is going to go there even at that early stage and are people going to contribute to that and are you going to allow those people to come in and look at disease increases in your country and you know help the world figure out okay how scary is this so you know I can't guarantee it will happen but it would be a pretty crazy world
3: if it didn't and Bill Gates thank you very much (laughs) thank you
1: We'll hear more from Jeff in just a moment. But first, in the upcoming issue of The Economist, you'll be able to read Jeff's review of Bill Gates' new book on pandemic prevention. That'll be in the culture section. If you're not a subscriber, you really should be. Get your best introductory rate at economist.com slash podcast offer. There's a link in the show notes. I'm back with Jeff Carr, The Economist's science and technology editor to reflect on the future of pandemic prevention. Uh, Jeff, it seems like a real uh, it was a real burden to go out to California to speak to Bill Gates, wasn't it?
3: That was dreadful, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sounds like a fun interview.
3: <laughs> it, was a, it was a great fun interview. Uh, he, he's an interesting man to talk to.
1: So let, let's dig into some of the things he said. There are huge amounts of new ideas in what he's talking about, things that we've kind of discussed in the podcast and written in the paper before. It's interesting to hear Bill Gates put them all together. And he has a voice and a platform, perhaps that many scientists even don't. So it's um, important that he's saying these things. Um, the germ idea, the idea of this pandemic preparation unit in the World Health Organization. Let me just ask straightforwardly. I mean, do you think it's something that's going to happen? Ha. Huh, um...
3: I think it's probably about 50-50. I do worry that global attention has shifted very rapidly and all of diplomatic attention is now on Ukraine. So there is a serious risk that this will go into the back burner. If there was another variant that caused problems, then, of course, it would come back to public attention. So I think the question is whether it will remain front of mind in a sufficient number of politicians in sufficiently powerful countries for it to happen. But I would say there was a chance it would happen. And certainly, I'm sure Mr. Gates will be uh, lobbying for it to happen. And as you observed, he does have some useful lobbying power, particularly with the American government. So I would... be cautiously optimistic that might happen.
1: Yeah, so we've been reporting on the need for pandemic prevention for many years now. And of course, now there's lots of solid evidence about the impacts of pandemics in the form of much lived experience and data. Um, Just stepping back from what Bill Gates is suggesting, what do you think the future of pandemic prevention should look like? What should people, organisations, institutions be focused on now?
3: I would... Actually, as you might have gathered from my questions, I would put a little more resource into looking into this idea of viral chatter, where something comes into a human being, evolves a bit, goes back into the animal, evolves a bit and comes back again. And trying to preempt the transmission of viruses from other animals to human beings. Uh, they, They almost all start like this. The new pathogens are almost always something that's come from another animal. They have to adapt to humans, and some of them are better adapted to start with than others and the more chatter there is between the human beings and the animals the more likely you are to end up with something that will be pathogenic in people and the idea is that you might be able to spot these things happening and there is the example of hiv the pandemic that we've seen is caused by a virus that we have called HIV-1, which was a chimpanzee virus. There is another much more localised epidemic of HIV, uh, HIV-2. That comes from a monkey. And then there are some very rare HIVs that have been detected in humans that haven't got going at all. So if we've been monitoring that part of West Africa Back when these transmissions were taking place, which is back in the middle of the 20th century, we might have seen the viral chatter between the other primates and humans and been able to do something about it much earlier. So I I would probably put more emphasis than he would on doing that sort of thing. But other than that, I think his plan is a good one.
1: I think I'd agree with you, Jeff, actually. You talked to him about the Global Virome Project, didn't you? And he kind of played down the importance of the work that those guys are doing, or trying to do at least, where they're trying to sequence as many... Virus genomes as possible, just to see what's out there because there's this enormous dark matter of viruses and and potential viruses that can spill over, and just having that catalog and knowing what's where is quite interesting and he he seemed to sort of play that down as you'd need too many places to sort of do the monitoring I, I find that surprising simply because the idea of monitoring fits into the third strand of his ideas, which is improve healthcare systems all around the world. I mean, how do you do the monitoring it's to improve healthcare systems around the world, especially in poorer places. And then you would be doing all this monitoring anyway, and the blood samples could be then also used to keep the monitoring going. Um, and he also didn't mention much about, rather than looking at the viruses themselves, just Keep an eye out for all of the immunological markers in people's blood all over the world. And then you can get some warning that something is happening if there's an outbreak somewhere. The Global Immunological Observatory, which is another sort of massive project that is a sort of early warning sign to future pandemics. And I suppose these are kind of theoretical ideas, aren't they?
3: That That's not a bad idea. It is a theoretical idea. But I would have thought the problem with that would be that if you've got an immunological signal that you're seeing in a lot of places, you've probably got your pandemic already. Um, you could look for immunological traces in the same way that you look for viral chatter. I mean, you could look for unusual patterns of antibodies in the same way as you could look for viral DNA and RNA. So it's not a silly idea.
1: And all of that is going to be much easier given new diagnostics, which Bill Gates was very optimistic about. I mean, he's a technology man, so technology probably excites him. So let's talk about that. How important do you think these rapidly evolving surveillance technologies are? You know, cheaper genomic sequencing, better blood sampling, etc.?
3: Absolutely crucial, because that's the only way you're going to catch these things early. And if you don't catch them early, it's the way you, that you're going to pick up early on the evolution of new strains. Because one thing we've learned from, from COVID is that natural selection really does work. So you can almost think of the monitoring and nipping in the bud of, of new strains as being a micro version of stopping the pathogen getting going in the first place. So for that, you have to have effective rapid diagnosis. Absolutely. It's crucial.
1: And it's something that's possible now. Actually, hearing you talking about HIV and the evolution of that and how it ended up in humans, you were saying that if we'd been tracking this stuff in the 20th century, but of course, we couldn't have done, really.
3: No, 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 no. no, I'm not saying that people were negligent. We didn't have the tools, but now we do have the tools. But you can go back into tissue samples that were taken way before HIV was identified, either symptomatically or, or as a virus, and see that there are tissue samples that were taken in various parts of Africa where the virus is present.
1: And what about this inhaled transmission blocking vaccine? I found that fascinating. I'd not heard about that.
3: No, I I, I confess I hadn't. Uh, It's a very interesting idea.
1: I mean, it it sounds theoretically possible to have some sort of mucosal defense against something. I mean, this is the kind of technology which is sort of goes beyond all the stuff we've heard about in terms of vaccines and things. And, you know, having some sort of way of blocking infections, at least for the most vulnerable, would be fantastic.
3: Yes, it would. Yeah, yes.
1: Okay, well, finally, I mean, this is a question we've been asking for the past two years, all the way through the pandemic, and I imagine we'll continue to ask more in the future. Do you think that the world's learnt enough on COVID to actually avoid another devastating pandemic?
3: I'd like to hope it has. As I said, I think it depends. All human beings have only a finite attention. And the question is whether the finite attention of the people who have to make the relevant decisions to do this sort of thing is absorbed by other matters. I think it probably comes down to that. I think if the attention of the relevant politicians can be kept focused on this to the point where you set the ball rolling. Once you set the ball rolling and given some sort of guarantee that it'll be bankrolled, then it can be picked up by um, people whose focus is elsewhere. So I think the next six to 12 months will either have something in a year's time that's starting to move and create the institution's that will be needed to do this, or it'll get forgotten about. That that would be my prediction. I'm not going to say which it will be, but my prediction is that if it's not done within a year, it won't be done at all.
1: Jeff, that's been very interesting. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Arlok. Thank you for listening to Babbage. And you can hear more about how to tackle global diseases by scrolling back to an episode from last month in which we looked at how to eradicate malaria. And we do talk about the promise of gene drive technologies in that show. So go and give it a listen. It's called How Do You Solve a Problem Like Malaria? Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin and mixed by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha and in London, always on the lookout for the next pathogenic threat, this is The Economist.